And I'm going back to Arizona, where it's freaking hot as hell. It sucked. What the hell is this overqualified word? Like, number one in Arizona, I don't do any deals in Arizona. Huh? I knew everybody in the country until crash happened. Loans are just being made easy to get. If you're a loan officer for a few years, you're making big money. Whole life policy information, 401ks, IRAs, checking accounts, savings accounts, CDs, mutual funds, anything that you have every set in. Don't put yourself in that position. Get it done. Get it complete. Make sure everything's cleaned up. You're listening to The Azria Show. If you're looking for quality real estate investing information that you can trust, you've found it. Stay tuned and join the tens of thousands of members that have already benefited from Azria, your home for education, market information, support, and networking opportunities that will advance your real estate investing career. Welcome, welcome, everybody. This is Mike Delpre, Executive Director of the Arizona Real Estate Investors Association, and this is the Azria Show. We have a special guest here today. Before I bring him on, Marcus Maloney's not here. So you may notice that he's not here right now. He had a, an engagement he needed to attend. We miss you, Marcus. We'll see you on the next one. So let's get back to the show here. Aaron Chapman, how you doing, man? Not bad, brother. Thanks for letting me back. Let me in after missing the first round. Yeah, yeah, no worries, man. It's been about two months. You're a busy man. Got you on the schedule. We wanted to do it in, per in person. So I think it's gonna be a great episode. Tell us about yourself, man. Just tell us who you are, your background, right? So before we go into what you currently do, how'd you get into the lending world? Tell us about yourself. Spent my high school years on the cattle ranch. And you get oh, to okay. see a very, very simple business plan, right? You just get your ass up and get out there, get to work, and you watch slowly your effort and things growing, right? It was pretty awesome to do. And it was a lot of hard work. And you learn a lot of things at the feet of my dad. It was, it was an enjoyable time. I went from there. Graduated high school, not because I was any good at what I was doing out there. Actually, I cheated my ass off to get that C. I engineered mm -hmm. my C <laughs> to yeah. make sure nobody really questioned what was going on. Got out halfway through my senior year to work in the oil fields of Wyoming. Again, wow. you're getting to learn a lot of new things. It was a wholly different environment. I'm 18 years old, I'm a bunch of, around a bunch of roughnecks, if you will, in the mm -hmm. oil fields. Guys that have been in the, everything from drill rigs all the way to the welding side of it. And you're learning the dynamics, the human dynamics in, in that type of environment. And then from there, ran heavy equipment, drove truck, and I had an opportunity to work in the mines in northern New Mexico, which was an oh. amazing opportunity. My family sold the ranch while I was in Wyoming. So wait, wait, where, you, where was the ranch when you grew up on? Central Utah. Okay, Utah to Wyoming to northern New Mexico. To northern New Mexico, back to Arizona. Right? My family mm -hmm. sold the ranch, came back to Arizona. Partnership went bad, right? My dad's Irish, and you know mm -hmm. when, when things go bad, it's like he's ready to fight. So <laughs> sold that out got out of it and he went back to mining. That was his background. Okay. So working underground, he loved the, he didn't like surface work. He loved being underground. I didn't understand wow. why, but I heard all the stories as a kid. Tell me so, a story. Well, I mean, he would tell me about <laughs> the stuff where I he was stories. working, working with, they call like a, there's a place you call a raise. Okay. Right? And so what it is, you're going from one, one level to the next level, they'll drill downward. It's like a, where you just drop uh, the ore and it drops down to the level below you. Okay. Right. So he was uh, doing what they called cribbing arrays and he was, it's putting in the timbers into it and he's building it all up so you can uh, kind of secure it. He had fallen down this raise mm. and landed on the tracks because it was a track drift is what they call it. He had the little locomotives coming in and out of it. He landed on the track and messed his back up. And he was talking about how he was, you know, his partners when we worked underground. He was telling me all kinds of stories growing up. Remember when we'd go to on vacations, we'd pick up my dad after a shift right at the mine. Mm -hmm. He would jump in and we'd take off and it was vacation time. Yep. And so I got to see the mine property, but never got to see down in it. 
Okay. And so because of my background running heavy equipment, breaking rock on the surface, he was able to convince the guys at the mine to let me come and give it a shot. So went underground uh-huh. with him and they just turned me loose with him. Just He said, just follow your dad. He's the best miner we got. Just do what he mm-hmm. tells you to do. Well, you got to understand, my pop was always, it's like, he, I wouldn't say he ruled with an iron fist. That's a little bit of a strong way of saying it. But my pop, man, you were a man when you stepped on the cattle ranch. You stepped out mm-hmm. and he'd knock you on your ass. Yeah. And then you go underground his world down there. Wow. And so, um, you know, usually a person being put, turned loose in a mine takes about six months to learn the process before you're made from what they call a nipper to a miner. Okay. And he just turned me loose day one. Do this, do this, do this. And within 21 days, I did what they called cycling a heading, which usually it's about six months before a person actually learns how to do that. And what they do is you walk into, it's called it a tunnel. That's your heading. It's going on a direction. And so that direction is the direction of a compass, which is a heading just like you would have on mm-hmm. your compass. And that's why they call it that. Because you have your our surveyors, they're utilizing that to point you what direction you're going to go. And then you're on that heading that they set with these pins in the that are set in the tunnel on the sides and on the top. And you got to get out the lines and line everything up and draw your heading where you're going. And you got to line it all out. And then when you draw out your pattern, you start drilling about 32 holes into the into the forward direction where you're going. It's about six foot deep. Wow. They're about two inch yeah. holes. And then you pack them full of explosives. You wire it all up. You step around the corner. You blow that up. You get a loader. You clean it all out. You support the ground and you do it again. That so is a blown, blown cycle. You're just blowing things up all day. Blowing things up all day, right? You're, <laughs> yeah, you're okay. running this drill machine. It's 160 <laughs> pounds. You got to manhandle this thing. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, you see the big jackhammers in the road construction of their hammering. Mm-hmm. This actually has to be elevated. So it's got a single leg that's run with air. Raise oh. it up and position it where you want. Then you're drilling and you're handling this thing as you're drilling into the, sur- into the uh, rock. And you let the air off. And then you pick it up and you pull that thing out. And you've got to manhandle the damn thing to get up to come out while it's hammering. And sometimes a little pebble will fall in and it gets stuck and you're having to hold this thing as it's hammering and try and get it out and you're working it back and forth. So it makes you into it, makes you into a man when wow, you're down there. Sounds like it, man. <laughs> so my 20, and I remember one of the craziest stories down there is everything looks the same. That's what really, really is crazy about this place. You're talking about, it's all just rock tunnels. Nothing looks different down uh, there. First got turned loose down there with my pop. They showed me around. They said that there's certain places where they would put... The explosives in one cabinet. So you have this lock box where the explosives are. You got another lock box where you have all the timers and and the the stuff to set off the charges, what they call the electrics. And you have to go to two different places. They're not kept together, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to put the things that set off the explosives with the explosives. Yeah, they got it. So they say, hey, go down to line five and get this, and go down to line that. You know, along the way, you'll see the cabinet for all the uh, for all your timers and all and your your blasting caps and whatever else. And then go down to line five, and that's where they have all the explosives at. So they sent me with a loader. I'm going there and loading all this stuff up. And I get down to what they call line five. And I backed down in there with this loader. And as these loaders, you sit sideways. So it's easy to go backwards or forwards because you're sitting sideways on the thing. I'm backing down there. And all you hear is this pump, this pneumatic pump, pumping the water out from where it's just creeping in into that particular area because it will flood if you don't just get it all pumped out. And there's something weird about that place, man. The hair is standing up on the back of my neck. I wanted out of there. Vibes. Yeah, really, really, really bad vibes. I backed in there. I opened up that cabinet. I just started throwing boxes in. I needed, I think it was like three or four boxes of explosives. And they're like, I think they're 100 pound boxes. I mean, you're just throwing, right? I'm just getting those things in the loader. I'm getting out of there. I hauled back to where I was supposed to be. And it was like, so how was that? I'm like, I ain't going back in there. They all started laughing. What are you laughing at? And there's like, Nobody wants to go back in that place. Five miners were killed oh. years ago, and nobody likes going in there. So the, why do they keep the crap there? 
Yeah, yeah. Like, literally is the freaking. No, why'd you send me out there? Like, yeah, you're, I mean, I'm in the new guy. So I always had to go back and I hated having to go at that. Because oh, it was just an eerie spot. And they didn't tell me. And so for it to, you actually feel it. Yeah. And then find out later that's what happened. So that was one of the crazy spots. I remember the day that I that I cycled my first heading. What was crazy is I was missing the blasting caps. If I remember correctly, it was this time I was missing the blasting caps. I literally had to run a bunch of tunnels because I got figured out where the place was. I'm running all these tunnels pop out a backside to where that stuff is. I grabbed a whole bunch of stuff and I ran back sprinting. If I get it plugged in, I can blow this up. And I literally hit my full cycle in 21 days. Everybody's congratulating uh-huh. me. I got taken up up to the top. So you're on the surface. The shift boss is there. I twerk 21st shift. And my boss and my dad goes into his his uh, office and start talking to him. Then they wave me in. This old guy gets up. Shakes my hand, put his arm around me, goes, I've never seen anybody in 44 years of doing this as able to cycle heading in less than six months. Because you're a minor now, you get minor pay. Wow. And you get minor respect. That was a big deal to me, but that wasn't the biggest deal down there. So that that was huge, right? To be okay. able to get to that point with these guys. I was 20, 22, 23 years old. Then I was down there. My dad, I was now trusted to run my own heading. So okay. we're in the spot where we're running two different headings off of a main tunnel. My dad's going one direction, I'm going the other. And you communicated with your headlight on your head because you can't talk. It's too noisy down there. I saw as I'm drilling into the face of my heading, I saw the light on it going around, yeah, actually doing it, going back and forth. So that was, that was a signal to me to stop. So I shut down. I turned and I looked and I walked towards it. Here's the general mind su- superintendent for Unical running the whole place. And he and my dad are talking and he's asking questions about what's going on there. And I heard my dad say, well, my partner and I are, and that's the last I heard mm. because I made it. I've heard my dad talk about his partners so much as a kid. But for me to be put on his level to save my partner. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was it. Ah. That was it. I'm like, this is what I've been trying to get. And wow. I've been there for only two, three months. That's amazing, man. And I was able to be called his partner. It was a big deal. Good for you, man. Okay, so let's transition a little bit. So that's a huge, sounds like a huge milestone for you. I can just, just tell, right? Yeah. Like that meant a lot to you. So, so now you're this big time lender. One of the biggest lenders <laughs> in the country going from underground to in an office or wherever it may be. So how'd, that, how'd you go from that world? Is there another phase before you got into lending or? Well, it was a kind of a quick phase to get into lending in, okay. a, in actuality. So they started shutting down that project. Mm-hmm. Right? So what it was is we were working for a contracting company. They had the people who worked for Unical, okay. actual miners for Unical. Then they brought out a contracting company because they were behind in their production. Brought this contracting company, which I worked for with my pop, and we were advancing their their objectives faster, and they still weren't able to meet their objectives. And so Unical decided to shut down the mine. And during the mine process of shutdown, mm-hmm. people were getting laid off. And since I was one of the newer guys, they laid me off. Yeah, my dad stayed on for a lot longer. My dad was pissed. He's like, "Dude, you're out mining a lot of these guys that have been here for two, three, four, five years." Yeah, he goes, "You're breaking more rock going fight." He goes, "But it's split it." He goes, "You're one of the newer guys. It's not based on performance. It's based upon tenure." Which he goes, "Which he hated that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you don't perform, then just get out." Yeah. And I'd learned the way he does it, and we were breaking rock pretty close to the same every single day. And so, but I got let go. I'm like, "Hey, it's not a big deal." Mm-hmm. I have my wife, my kid's back home, six-month-old kid. I've got a really good resume. Yeah. I'm going to find a job really quick and easy. Now, I hate the fact that I was going to lose out on that mine work because I love that underground work. Surface work was going to suck from there on. Oh, well, you do what you got to do. Surface work. I never even thought about it. Yeah. Get that. <laughs> you get in your blood yeah. and that's, there's two yeah. different things in the world now. Now there's underground, there's surface work. Yeah. 
And I'm going back to Arizona, where it's freaking hot as hell, right? Mm -hmm. I ran heavy equipment. I dug pools here for years. It sucked. Yeah. But I mean, those excavators, let me just tell you, those guys out there running equipment, it's, you know, you're sitting on 200 degree pumps in your equipment in 120 degrees and you're banging rocks. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. That's interesting. Okay. You started doing pools. I've been doing pools before that. So I came back, I went to the mines after the pools. And then, so I came back and started putting in resumes all over the place. And everybody kept telling me I was overqualified, overqualified, overqualified. Mm-hmm. I called everybody I could to help me get connected with somebody. And it was getting to the point where it was dire. I was running out of, I was actually out of money. So I was leaving to go. There's that landscape place. I might be pioneer off of I-10 and the 60 just south. It's right over by Arizona Mills Mall. I think so. Pretty, pretty familiar. So yeah, there's a landscape spa- place there on the east side of the road. I, I went there and it was a $10 an hour truck driving job. And my wife gave me a coupon for free diapers because I didn't even, we couldn't even afford diapers yeah. at that point. So as I'm applying for that job on the way back, I pick up the diapers. Well, went in there, applied, got a $10 an hour truck driving job. I could at least get this. Overqualified again. Hmm. Like, what the hell is this overqualified word? I'm either qualified yeah, Don't or you want not. a great worker like, come on, <laughs> in your right? position? Yeah. Now I understand it now as an employer of sorts. Yeah. So I remember just wiping tears from my face. I'm leaving from that location as I'm driving to the to find a grocery mm. store to get these diapers. The gaslight, the gaslight on my truck comes on, mm. and I'd not driven on that light for very long at all. So I had no idea how long it could go. But all I know is I need to hurry up and get someplace where I can get some fuel. So I pulled up to a grocery store somewhere there in Chandler. I think it was like a Smith's back then. Oh, so I forgot had, about that. You had a grocery store <laughs> and you had a, a, a gas station right outside of it. So I pulled up to the pump. All I have is a debit card and I knew I was overdrawn. Mm. So I said a quick prayer. I swiped that debit card, declined. Mm. So I rifled through my truck, found a couple of coins. I locked the door and I decided to walk that parking lot and see what change I could find. Yeah. And what seemed like a couple of hours had passed, I had found enough to get two gallons of gas or a little bit more than that. So I went and exchanged my time coin gra- uh, gathering for those two gallons of gas. Then I went to the grocery store to find the one thing that I could afford to get because I had a coupon, yeah. which is those diapers. And I stood in line. So I finally got to the checkout person. I put my diapers on there and I handed her a coupon. And it just felt, I, I can't even begin to tell you how it felt. Oh, I can imagine. I spent my day already walking uh, the parking lot and then to do that. And then when you think about, well, then as I'm leaving, I had my head down trying to get out of that grocery store and not look at anybody, just get out of there. And I heard my name called. Oh, my. And that's where I turned to look. There was this guy named Keith. Keith Henderson is in. And he started approaching me. And he used to run the office at the company I ran heavy equipment four years before. He asked how things were. And I gave him a brief overview. I didn't want to go into detail. I just kind of skimmed mm. on it. He goes, well, let's go to dinner. I'm like, dude, I can't. Right now, I just can't afford to go to dinner. He goes, oh, I got a gift certificate to Red Lobster. Let me take okay. you and your wife. So. He took us to dinner at Red Lobster there on Alma School in uh, 1997. Okay. There's where he sat down. He talked about the fact he was now in the mortgage industry. Mm. And he had given me a business card for a broker's office to this guy named Scott. He says, call Scott. He'll get you connected. So I said, well, worth a shot. I have nothing else to do. I literally had no other options. So I cut a foot off of my hair. I shaved. My mom bought me some business-like clothes. I went in and I interviewed with Scott and he started me as a telemarketer in 1997. Wow. And that's what got me in this industry. Those little things, man, like but, just in the grocery store, like. Think about it, right? It was 97. People still carry change, mm, right? And mm-hmm. think about the price of gas at the time. I couldn't do that today at 3 and $4 a gallon, <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah. right? So you think about that. And then what if I found change really quick and I got yeah. out there quicker? I wouldn't have seen Keith. If it took me longer to find that couple of gallons of gas worth of change, I wouldn't have seen Keith. It was the perfect timing Love to it. run into Keith. 
you know, I had the opportunity to take him out to dinner recently and re I hadn't talked to him in 20 some odd years. Wow. I reached out to him and said, Keith, we need to get together. He goes, dude, I haven't, man, I haven't heard from you in a long time. And then so I took him out to a really, really nice steak dinner and I thanked him. Great. Thanked him for being in the right place at the right time. He changed my life. So where do I sit yeah. now? Right? I went from a telemarketer mm -hmm. that was completely not only broke, but in debt all over the place to now I'm ranked number seven in the United States of over a million people that do my job. And I focus on the real estate investor. Now I still do loans for people buying houses to live in for your second homes. We do the DSCR kind of loans, blanket loans for people buying 10, 12, 15, 20 houses at once, or just want to refinance all, all into one, one loan. We do some commercial stuff. We do a lot. I yeah. got a massive team that we focus on and work with the investor because it's the hardest thing out there. And how many, I remember you're talking, how many loans are you doing a year? Our best years were 13, 1400 a year. Wow. That's amazing, you know? man. And in, in your nationwide or local? 30 years. I mean, excuse yeah. me, 30 states. 30 states. 30 got states. It. I am local. What's funny is I don't do a ton locally. Mm -hmm. It's when I got, you know, I started doing a lot. I was doing a lot locally. It's how you break into it. Right. And, um, but I've got, what was it an outfit called Modex who tracks the, tracks the loan originators and how many deals they do. They reached out to me this last year and it's like, you're number one in the state of Arizona. And you're like in the top 10 nationally, I'm like number one in Arizona, I don't do any deals in Arizona. Uh, I'm not connected with anybody yeah, like yeah. I used to be. He goes, well, you're number one because <laughs> yeah. of all the deals you yeah. do, because we're not looking at where you do them. It's just, where are you located? Yeah. Got right? it. So since my office is located here in Arizona, you know, I used to do a ton of business here. I knew everybody in the country until the crash happened. Yeah. Right. So when that crash happened, I was still doing very well. I worked countrywide at the time. Oh, you're probably doing very well at the I was, time. <laughs> I was doing extremely well. Yeah, right? yeah, and, yeah. And so as I'm heading out of town to kind of get my mind right, I was jumping on the Harley, going to leave for three days. After when the recession happened? When the recession was starting started to happen. happen. So yeah. it was August is 2008. So mm -hmm. this is now what? We're August of 2023. This is 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, so oh, it's August wise. 8th of 2008. 8's always been my lucky number. So I'm heading out of town on August 8th for three days. I was going to take off on a Friday and gone through Saturday, Sunday, come back Sunday night. I was going to just take the bike and ride into Reserve, New Mexico and just go ride, just clear my head. Mm -hmm. 15 minutes into that, the 101, the 202, kid driving his dad's truck, came over into my lane, wasn't looking, pushed me into another car. I went flipping at 80 plus miles an hour. And I woke up in the, in the hospital room with not knowing where I was at. Oh, man. And it tore up this side of my face. It was really the cool thing about it. When I finally got torn, my memory would work because my memory would reset like every three to five minutes. I realized, wait, I got the full beard. I didn't have that going to it because I had a patch that was missing right here. If you ever seen any pictures from me before, I couldn't grow anything there, but that side of my face got tore up. Mm. Now all of a sudden it filled in, which was like, shit, yeah, I got yeah, a beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, right, I can't walk. I've got both legs are shattered. I only had one good limb, which is my left arm. And I had to, one, try and get around and do what I needed to do with one arm. And then secondly, I was bound to a wheelchair. And when I finally got out of there, my memory was starting to come back, but still only last a few minutes. So when I got to the industry, I was still battling the brain problem from the from the head injury that I took. So I had two people left in the industry when so, I came back. So real quick, so you, so Keith got you into, you started telemarketing. I'm assuming you were doing like um, just getting applications or interest for the loan officers. Yeah, they would give me a list of people to call and just see if somebody wanted to refi. Then it, yeah. and the loan officer comes in. You probably, obviously it sounds like you grew your way up into that, into countrywide. So if you guys give Real brief, what did that world look like at that time for people that didn't experience the recession or newer to investing right now? They hear about it. 
just did a quick Snapchat. Oh, it, it. I'll try and be as quick as I yeah, can. Yeah, but I know, it's, it's a story not, too. Yeah, it's it was a whole movie on it. So it was <laughs> a little broker shop that I started at yeah. doing the telemarketer thing. And then after I generated enough leads that was getting handed out, I asked the the manager who hired me, hired me, Scott. I'm like, dude, can I work some of these? Mm-hmm. So they let me work a few leads and he set me with a guy, Greg, who's a real estate agent here, right? I think he's with West USA. He was my trainer and he taught me how to take a loan application, go from there and took the interest rates dropping below 7%, 6.875 a year later. It was later. normal then. Exactly. It took a was year yeah. before I finally got enough business because I was working two jobs. I'd run heavy equipment in the morning. Actually, I drove truck to Sacramento back once a week. That sucked after about three months. Okay. Then I started running heavy equipment again with the same company I did before that. I was working with Keith. Speak four hours a night, get up at uh, 3 a.m., be the job site by four, work till noon, get to the office by two, and work till 10 every single day for a year before the rates dropped below 7%. And all of a sudden, these refis started coming. So I replaced my income there. And then I started getting offers from other people because I was number one in the office. Mm-hmm. Not all the time, but now and again. So I started getting offers from other companies, all these recruiters. Like, wow, this is kind of cool. They're going to pay me a bonus to go here and a bonus to go there. So I took a couple different jobs. Some of those places no longer around. Yeah. Until, and even Countrywide is no longer yeah. around. I finally had an opportunity to get hired by another company here who's no longer around. They had just gotten into a condo development mm. where Countrywide actually paid to have their master appraisal done. They paid to get them Fannie and Freddie approved. And I went there and I was taking the business so, from So was it a development? Because I know what was happening there here in Phoenix was a lot of apartment conversions. They're taking it was apartments. It a new build in, condo. Oh, new build condo. Okay. They, new build right. condos up in North Mesa. So I went in there. I built a great relationship with the, with the salespeople. Okay. So they kept pushing me. Well, then that country where I got pissed, like, who is this guy that keeps taking our business? Because we did all this work to get them set up. So the manager in Gilbert started sending me letters. I had a stack of letters on my desk. Well, once our company was acquired by Washington Mutual, I'm like, I ain't going to work for that company. I opened up one of those letters and I went to her. So when I sat down with her at Countrywide, I basically bullshitted my way through the whole thing. I'm like, I got a team. I got all this. Mm-hmm. like, cool. They made me the very first sales manager in the history of Countrywide. They gave me the very first satellite office that the Countrywide ever had because I was going to bring my team over. And I convinced this little telemarketing group to come over. Got that it. was just telemarketing for another loan officer, brought him and his little telemarketing group. He's like, I'm going to turn you into LOs. I will, I, will, I will get you taken care of. So I brought them over like I had this operating team. And because of just us getting in there, just going at it hard, we're closing tw- sometimes $12 million a month in business. That, that little team, because I was teaching them exactly how I did it. And why was that, just for everyone listening, like, why was that happening? What was going on? Like, just to recap the recession, just like what happened there and, and it all disappeared. Loans are just being made easy to get, yeah. right? So what you have, you go all the way back, and this is this might be more than what you're asking for. You go all yeah. the way back to the 70s when Lou Ranieri was Solomon Brothers. Watch the big short people. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you how that all started. He created the mortgage-backed security, right? It used to be just your local bank would take in depositor money. They'd pay people for their checking account, savings mm-hmm. account, CD account, a certain amount, depending upon how much, how long you would leave it in there. So more for a CD because of what's in there longer. So they could use that money to lend it back to the community basically lend it back to the people that they got the money from at a big higher rate and they keep the difference. He's like, why don't we do this on the global scale? So he started that. Wow. And then what happened is like, it became sexy to be in bonds. Bonds was not a thing before, but this is a bond. It's a long-term instrument. Well, then they start getting like, well, we have all these people want in, but we don't have everybody borrowing from us because it's so tight. We need more people borrowing the money if we're going to continue to keep taking money. Mm-hmm. So that's when they started getting loose with the guidelines. They started right. changing it to these pay, pay loans and these no income, no asset loans and stated income loans and all that started happening in the late 90s. 
till you get to the mid 2000s. Now all of a sudden, all came to a head. Way too much money out there for stuff that was being paid back. And then you have the crash and you have the Dodd-Frank Act and all that kind of stuff. And my personal way of weathering the crash, I weathered it from a hospital bed or from a wheelchair on opiates. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I didn't realize what was going on so badly because I was on opiates where the rest of the world is just imploding. Wow. And it was really, really an ugly spot for the whole world. It it definitely was. Yeah. Going back to, I remember those liar loans. I was just in, I was in the loan officer world for a little bit. And I just remember the guy was like, the loan officer, because I was in training, the guy was like, he was like, what do you do? I'm a landscaper. You own the landscaping company. And I was just like, whoa, what am I doing? What am I yeah. doing here, man? That's how reckless it got. It so, got very, very yeah. cowboy, very, very reckless. Yeah. And then when you start instituting the Dodd-Frank Act in the, you know, 2000, was it 2012? And they really started making a lot of big changes. It was huge. What is the Dodd-Frank Act? Just Oh, that was so you had Barney Frank and Chris Dodd, who were basically the names behind mm-hmm. all or names in front of all the legislation that was passed on regulating our industry. And it's extreme regulation where before you can do whatever you wanted. Yeah. One of the big things that people will notice is when you send out disclosures to somebody that's going to borrow money, you have this massive stack of paper that people got to go through. It's a lot of redundancy. Where before we'd send you your disclosures, which was maybe eight to 10 pages. And then you'd have what's a, a form that goes with it called the Loan Application Disclosure Acknowledgement Form. Just sign the one form that you got the disclosures, and we have a list of what they are, and we're good. Yeah. Where now they got to sign everything, and it's got to be signed right. And if it doesn't, it's not signed correctly. We can't produce. We can't proceed with the loan. It's gotten really, really complicated. Now we're just used to it. Yeah. Right? But when it first happened, I'm like, wait a minute, I got three days to get this out, and it's if they tell me these six things verbally, I still have to send all this information out, even though I know nothing else about them. It's gotten really complicated. Indeed. That's. Do you notice like any loosening up in any way or has it just gotten better and more strict? Do you like, do you foresee like any, any resemblance of back then to now? Um, anyway? Very, very, very little. Got it. There is some, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing it in the investor world because now banks can create their own, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to go through Fannie and Freddie. So the more the banks create something and they have their own, what they call a non-qualified mortgage or non-QM, they can do that as long as they're servicing it and it's separate. And you're going to see a little bit of that is out there, right? There's a, what they call debt service coverage ratio loans, mm-hmm. which is another way. It's not quite state income, but at least showing the property and take care of itself. There are some that are getting 100% financing, I've heard, yeah. for investors, which is insanity. Yeah. Like, I have no idea why anybody even accept that. And what I've heard people coin that as is that you're just basically prepay. It's a, how do they say that? You're literally like, it's a delayed down payment. I've heard somebody say that. Okay. That's nuts. Right. So yeah. you get 100% financing now, and then you're just going to pay your mortgage, which is going to be your down payment over a period of time. We don't know what the market's going to do. Now, I don't expect it to drop, but if it did, where are you at? You're operating purely on hope. There's others that just say, well, this is for more of a seasoned investor. I don't give a damn how seasoned you are. I don't think mm-hmm. anybody's seasoned enough to take that kind of a mess on, especially nine, 10% interest rates at 100% financing. This yeah, doesn't man. make any sense it, to me. It's wild. Man. And when they say it's a seasoned investor, what is it? They're literally. In a way, you're kind of like tickling the ego of the person you're selling it to. Oh, you're a seasoned person. You mm. know what you're doing. I'm going to hand this off to you. I'm like, in reality, they're jerking you off, right? You're getting yeah. screwed by this this particular thing. I I just can't subscribe to that whatsoever. So I'm a big fan of the good old-fashioned 30-year fix. Put your 20% down. Try and avoid putting yourself in a position where if things swa- uh, flipped, because we saw them flip, you're going to get yourself in a bad spot. I came back to a completely obliterated industry. Yeah. Two people left in it that were doing business on the real estate side that I'd worked before. One was my mother, Marianne. She's with Rosenbaum Realty now. And the other was Carolyn Irby. She was with she was with Coldwell Banker at the time. We haven't talked in a little while. I do need to reach out to her. 
but they would both communicate with me, call me up, give me a referral, mm-hmm. call me back five minutes later, say, did you write that down? I said, did I write what down? Grab your pen, grab your paper and write this down. They coached me through what I needed to do to get my mind back, get oh, okay. my memory to work again. So I walked around with a notepad for like a year oh, wow. and I'd write things down. What was really interesting about that, if I didn't cross it off, I would do it again. I, it's like, oh, I didn't do that yet. I'll go do it. Sometimes I'd call somebody up and say, hey, this is Aaron with such and such mortgage company. And like, yeah, we just spoke. Like, wow, what did we say? Because I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And I had to explain to them who I was and what I was dealing with at that time. And it'd be amazing. To, it was amazing to me how many people had compassion on me yeah. with that. Okay. Um, because like, they would yeah, reach out true. to Carolyn or my mom and say, hey, who is this guy? Right? What's going on here? And say, like, hey, they'd explain it. Say, like, he's very good at what he does. The only thing is he, he went through this one thing. And I still was able to do a lot of business. How'd you feel though, man? Like, like that's gotta be frustrating. You're building your business. Maybe you're newer into that, coming out of the recession. Things are changing. It was after the recession, right? Oh, it was, yeah. This yeah, was 2009. So, so you, you're, if you were doing a loan, if you're a loan officer for a few years, you're making big money. And now all of a sudden there is no money and you got, you got to grind and you have the situation that you just dealt with. So I, I can only imagine how you felt. Like, how'd you get through that? What inspired you to keep? Well, one, I didn't want to go backwards. Yeah. Right. What, what else was I going to, was I going to do? And I knew what it was like when things were awesome. Mm-hmm. You had a taste of awesome. So I wanted to get back to that. And then Bank of America had taken over Wells, country, the country right. at that time, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. which I have theories about that whole thing. And it's not even any time to get into that. But ultimately, they took over and I'm working for Bank of America. In my opinion, it was like serving time for something I didn't do is mm-hmm. what it felt like. I just didn't like the way they operated compared to how I like to operate. So I left. I went to another company. And as I left, I had a new client call me up who was buying a house from somebody locally. And they were a, it's what called an FHA flip. Person was flipping the house, buying it, rehabbing it, flipping it, and the buyer was using an FHA loan. FHA didn't like flips. You had to own the house 90 days before you the flip it, but yeah. you can use, and there's a specific kind of loan that would work for that. The place I, the new place I went to could do that loan. At the exact same time I go over there, a former associate of mine at Bank of America calls me up and says, hey, I got one of these FHA flips here. Do you mind just taking it? Because we can't do that. I'm like, cool, I'll take it because we can do that. Mm-hmm. I called the seller. It have to be the same seller with two different buyers. And I explained to them what I was doing. They said, can you do an FHA flip? I'm like, yeah, I can get that done. I said, every loan originator says they can, and not a single one ever has. We'll be prepared to rewrite the contract in 90 days. We got that deal done in three weeks. Wow. So the CEO of that organization called me up and said, you got to come up here. So I sat down and said, what do we got to do to make sure all our people at least talk to you? Like, just tell them to talk to me, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. this, is, this was amazing. Next thing you know, I'm getting all this business from them because we delivered. And then they had these loan, these investors coming into Arizona because the, the price of housing was cheap here at that time, 2010-ish. It's amazing you can get for 50 grand in the state yep. of Arizona at that time. And the rents were huge. So all these people were coming in. I would love to have bought into it. My, my credit score was like 460 at that time because mm-hmm. of what had happened to me in the crash. So all these people were buying houses there. When they bought up everything in Arizona, they went to Indiana, then Texas, then Missouri, then Tennessee, and they started going around the country. And I just kept following those clients. When you say they, right? Like one thing I like to always let everyone know, especially in like the wholesale world, there's different buyers, like buyers go through cycles. So it's like, it's a, when things are down, it's a different type of buyer in our marketplace. It's not the California buyer or the hedge fund and the more savvy, more savvy, right? You yeah. Really these were a lot of investors yeah. coming out of California yeah. and they're buying what they call the turnkey investment yeah, real estate. So we bought a house, rehabbed it, sold it to them. Then they went to these different states. So I started following them and they would recommend, Hey, I want to use my lender. Oh, those people in states like, we don't want to use your lender. We're using our lender. They, they would fight back. Because I developed this relationship with them. 
next thing those people in those other states like, wait a minute, you're getting stuff done faster and our local guy will. Can you do other people for us? I'm like, yeah. So I started getting more referrals and more referrals. And that's what built me up to doing a thousand loans a year, 1,300 loans a year was because wow. it was all just people referring me. It was a hundred percent referral base. There was absolutely no advertising. They built that up. And so then I started adding team members to it. Mm -hmm. And I remember standing in Chipotle in 2014, it was just me and, a, and one staff member. And we were doing probably 18 loans a month. As I'm standing in Chipotle, it was just hot outside. I had to wait outside to get in. Finally got in. I'm standing in this massive line. And as I'm bored waiting to get to my point to order, I started counting heads behind the counter. And I realized there was 11 people there working at Chipotle to be efficient in, bur in burrito construction. Mm -hmm. I'm like, if they need 11 people to be efficient in burrito construction, what do I have to be and have to do real estate investment finance? So as I'm staring at that, I got to thinking, hmm, what if I put a person doing here and here? So I built out a process based upon Chipotle's method of building burritos. Just standing in line. So that's what yeah, I have now. You. I have 22 people yeah, okay. on my staff that we built out a system very, 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 very similar to that. All right, man. So you got your 22 people. So let's just go into some of the basics of like, you know, an Azria member, someone maybe newer to real estate investing or experience. Just like, we're going to start with the newer person. Just what, what do, they might not think they can get a loan, right? Maybe they don't have, uh, have steady income or good credit. I, I don't know. So like, just give us an idea of what does a, a newer investor have to do to be prepared to buy an investment property. So a very, very good friend of mine, Joel Moyes, he's actually one of the owners of Realty Executives here. Mm -hmm. We're business partners in many other things. Interesting, we don't do business together in the real estate mm -hmm. side. But what he loves to quote, and I don't know where this quote come from, but it's the start that stops most people. Okay. So think about that for a minute. The, it's the start that stops most mm -hmm. people. Real estate investors have to just start. If you want to become a real estate investor, if you want, if you hear that majority of millionaires are made in real estate in any other way, you got to start. What is the best place to start is to just call me. Right. Seriously, just call me because you got to figure out how you're going to acquire real estate. You can look at all the real estate you want, but if you need to figure out financially how to get your hands on that, you need to know that first. Too often people want to say, well, do I call you after I find a property? Well, do you know you can afford that property? Do you know you can get the financing of that property? Do you even know what it takes to finance that property? You're going to go through all this energy and all this time to search. You find the one you like. You're going to go through negotiations. You're going to go into contract and then call me. And if things don't work, look at all that time you just lost. Yeah, really, it's all about the money. You it's 100% about the money, about the money yeah. right? So yeah. if you don't know yet, then you're literally wasting all this time unnecessarily. So we dig deep into it right out of the gate. So have you ever heard of the term underwriter? Of course. Okay. So an underwriter is usually talked to, or at least looks at a file about the third week of the deal. Okay. Right. You have a loan origin that does a pre-qual. They issue this pre-qual and they'll look at a person's application, credit, and maybe a pay stub. Maybe look at a bank statement. So, okay. Yeah. You look like you can make this work. They'll give you a general idea of what you can do. Then you go out there and you hunt down a property, you go into contract. Then they say, okay, we need all this paperwork. Now that you started this loan, I want your tax returns, I want your, pay, your updated pay stubs, your W-2s, your bank statement, K-1s if you own a business, mm -hmm. all these things. Well, they start sending all this information in. So then technically we're saying some loan officers will give them a prequal of some sort and they're shopping before they even- Before, get before it even sees yeah. an underwriter, yeah. right? Yeah. Underwriters yeah. deeper in, because they work for a whole other department. They're yeah. elsewhere in the loan. They're not going to look at a deal until they see the, they want the appraisal in there. They want the insurance information in there. They want the title work in there. They want all the financials. Then they'll hand it in. Yeah. Well, then the underwriter looks at it and says, oh, you need this, 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 this. They come back with a massive list, right? Mm -hmm. So the loan officer's calling the people and like, oh, I got this jerk underwriter who wants all these things. So I decided to circumvent that whole process. 
So what we do is when somebody sends an application in, a member of my staff will review that application. They'll say, we need this list. They give a very comprehensive list. Now and again, I'll get a call from a client saying, you want all this stuff for a prequel? Yes. Mm. So I'm not going to waste my time or yours on something that's not going to close. Then when all that paperwork comes in, I hand it directly to an underwriter. Mm. Underwriters do my prequels, not me. Ah, nice. And so the underwriter, one of them who's running that that team, that small team of underwriters, because these are only do the prequels. They don't do any of the, the end. I got other underwriters that do the end. The one who kind of runs all of it, she's been doing this since 1982. Okay. She has a master's degree and she has been been a regional underwriting manager for five years. That's who looks at this. She's also oversees my product development. So I know you, you just ran through a bunch of different types of paperwork. So the traditional investor, what are some of those key documents, key things that they might not even know that they have to get together, right? So what are some regular jargon, some terms, and some documents that they should definitely know about? Well, 100% you're going to need your tax returns. Yep. Because we're going to need to know how your income is derived. And then anything that's associated with driving that tax return. So if you get K-1s from a business, 1099s, you have a W-2 employment, any of those things, anything that would show income or losses that would go on to the return to, to come up with what that bottom line is, we need to see. Because there's a lot of times people have joint returns, right? Yeah. Well, my joint returns say X amount of money is being made. Well, yeah, but by who? Yeah, joint returns, money's coming in from two different people. Yeah. If only one person is, uh, is trying to qualify, you can't use the other person's income because what if something happens to the other person? Right. We have to go you standing on your own two feet. So what drives your income? So you have to separate all that out. So you need anything that has to do with your taxable documentation. We also have to look at your assets. And, you know, some of the assets I think is probably the greatest assets to have would be whole life policy. Mm -hmm. Got a whole life policy. That to me is the, is the holy grail in my opinion. Okay. You've got that. That's that. We'll get into that here a little bit later. But you know, whole life policy information, four hundred one k's, IRAs, checking accounts, savings accounts, CDs mutual funds, anything that you have everything. assets in. It has to yep. be your assets, of course. It can't yep. be somebody else's assets that you have access to. Then you want any credit documentation. Anything has to do, we're going to pull a card report. We're going to dive into that one. If there's anything that has to do with a liability, it was a negative thing, and you have documentation to show that it was definitely not your fault. You know, Sometimes it had some medical reasons or whatever. We'd have to dig deep into that. Uh, but for the most part, it's pretty simple. It's really just documenting the information that we have. We will dive into it. We'll tell you what we need. You'll send it over. We'll do what a normal lender does in three weeks and 72 hours. Wow, that's amazing, man. So so what about, okay, so that that's a lot of good stuff for someone initially trying to realize what they need. So someone like myself, when you start, like I was all about cash and raising private capital. And then when I started realizing I need to also leverage banks, right? And I didn't have the great credit score. I got, all, I started getting my stuff together. But when I started applying for loans as an investor, it's like, you have all these GV, you have all these LLCs with different investors and different joint venture partners. And it just gets such a tangled web of like, well, who owns 40% of this LLC? Well, we need all their information. And just and it just kills the deal. And it gets an underwriter gives up on it. You well, know, sometimes you know, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I think sometimes they just don't know what they need. And so they ask too much. So is that just not the right loan officer or right I, lender? I think it's not the right lender because a yeah. lot of them just don't understand it. We have spent so much time working as far as our underwriters and our team working with real estate investors. I've been doing real estate investors exclusively since 2009. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and with thousands of transactions, we've seen a lot of people's different finances. So we're able to weed through it differently than somebody else. It gets confusing. You just explained a very, very confusing thing. Yeah. So if you're talking about you have multiple different partnerships. So we'll look at your tax returns. Like, oh, you got your, this particular schedule. So all these partnerships, get me all your K-1s. Yeah. Well, on your K-1s, if you own less than 25% of the business, sometimes we don't even look at the business itself. Oh, okay. So like, oh, just push off to the side. If you have more than 25%, okay, give us the business returns. 
They don't yeah. care about what other people own. We're going to look at the business returns itself. Now, this will tell us whether or not we have a failing business or a growing business. If it's, if it's growing, then we can continue to use that income. If it's failing, that's going to be cutting into your income. Yeah. Now you own a business that loses money, that costs you money all the time, right? So it's a matter of understanding what and why you need these things. Some people just grab it to grab it because they have no idea what they're doing with it. So now with the DSCR loan out there, obviously they don't ask for all this. No. Is there a difference? Is it like a better route to go? Should you just go straight to DSCR or is there better um, opportunities with, you know, the more hairy type situation? Well, what I tell her is send us everything, mm -hmm. let us analyze it, and then we can give you an idea of what options exist for you. If it's like, hey, you can do 10 loans here, but it's going to be ugly, a lot of paperwork. But at the same time, also, you can do DSCR. So let's say, let's say you find a property that has really, really lean margins on it yeah. to be in a cash flow position. You may want to go with a conventional loan that which we can pull off. It's extra paperwork. But you're not in it alone. Yeah. Believe me, every, every paper you hate to give us, we hate to read. So it's not like we're enjoying any of this. Yeah. It's very, very expensive. It's very costly for me to manufacture yeah. a very, very heavy deal like that. The worst tax returns I'd ever seen was with an entertainer, a Grammy award-winning entertainer, 18 hours of analysis on one tax return. Oh, wow. 18 hours. So he had so many businesses. Now he had two tax returns I had to analyze. Wow. It was crazy. And that, it was, that was just me and analyzing it to do the prequels. Back when I was doing all the prequels. Then to make sure I was right, I handed it off to Ellen. It was my, my processor at the time. 18 hours for her. Then we gave it to the underwriter. 18 hours later, he denied the loan. I'm like, bullshit. So we went back through it. I got his boss to look at it. 18 hours later, he approved the loan. Right? So it's, 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 we dig deep. We understand what we need and why we need it. And sometimes you don't need some of that stuff. Yeah. There is definitely a less is more in this world. Now, if we find that you have a property that has massive margins on it, let's go with the DSCR. Let's park that one over there because it can be done under, in many cases, under an LLC. So it doesn't appear on your credit. It's a business deal. You can still get your 10 Fannie Freddie and you're building up over here with a better margin property. Love so it. it's a matter of building your empire. Yeah, we you try to look at it from the perspective of this one person can has this capability to do X because of their assets. It's very asset driven. Mm -hmm. It's not so much income driven because when you're buying an investment property, as long as your income is enough to satisfy your current expenses for you as an individual, you buy an income producing property, we use the income to offset that expense, that for your debt to income ratio does not get impacted at all. Got it. So, so this is very important. So it's like having that mortgage company or that lender that understands real estate investors, like where you can look at their finances and switch loan products or have access to loan pro products are very important. So since you do, you're in 30 different states and you're based here, a lot, what a lot of people do due to Arizona's rising purchase prices and values, and sometimes the numbers don't shake out with the mm -hmm. interest rates higher now. So a lot of people are going out of state, maybe Midwest, the Rust Belt, whatever it may be. Are you dealing with those types of loans? And my question is, what do you think about the burr? And it's always a rage. It gets the online mm -hmm. hype, the books. So it's like, which I think there's a lot of variables in a burr. A lot of things can change. Just let me know your thoughts on the burr. Well, first off, since I do business in 30 states, I deal with a lot of people moving a lot of real estate weight in different places. And the yeah. fact that I speak at events across the country, I've got one going on in Memphis, October, huge October 19th, 20th, and 21st. You know, so I'm literally the MC of the event. Okay. Right? So anybody who wants to go to that, you just go to my website and you can come check it out with all the players in Memphis. Also, some we'll get into the guest speaker who's going to be there in a little bit if you'd like. But as far as the Burr, I freaking love the Burr because we are, we've been very successful with Burr. At my okay. peak, when I was doing 100 plus loans a month, we were doing 40, 30 to 40 of them in Burrs. Wow. Now, what makes us different with the Burr is the ability to finance and get your money back out of it quickly. 
Yes. Too often people go out there and they'll buy a property and they'll put, say, let's just say they find it. Like, we're going to use round numbers just for the sake of math for easy for people that are listening. I need you to be able to envision the numbers in your head so we'll sync up our brains. Let's say you're putting 20% or you're buying a property for 50000 And you're going to put, say, 25000 into that. So you're, now you're at 75000 on this property. And it's easy worth 100000 Okay. Well, you're, what you invest in this property is 75% of 100000 right? Correct. So you get that appraisal. A cash out refinance says you can go to 75% of the value, which is 75 grand. That's what you invest in the property. You should be able to get your money out, right? Well, not the way things work in the lending world when you went about it the way you did. You bought the property for 50 grand. You closed. You paid your contractor $25,000. Three months later, you got a house that's now done. You want to refinance it. The way the rules work in the conventional world, I can only get you what you invested at closing, which was 50 grand. So what we coach our clients to do is we say, do not close on a single property cash unless you consult us first. So I want you to call me, tell me about the deal. Go into contract, but call me, then we'll walk you through it. So when you get that 50,000, call your contractor, get them out, tell, let them tell you exactly what's going to take to rehab this house. He says, well, it's going to be about 25 grand. Bring in 30. So go to the closing table with $80,000 to the closing table. Literally go to closing and you have it on your settlement statement. We audit the settlement statement. Do not close on that cash purchase till I see it. Or remember, my staff sees it. We see your estimated settlement statement from the title company or the closing attorney, wherever you're at. And it says you have 50000 purchase price, X amount in cost, $30,000 repair escrow. Why is it 30000 25000 because you know that's what it is. You need a little bit for cost overrun just in case. Now, they hold on that money in escrow, in a repair escrow, and they pay your contractor. Now, I can show you about eighty grand to the closing table. Okay. Then when it comes time to refinance, you've got your properties, uh, the rehab is about done. I'll start the refinance the day after you close on that cash purchase. Okay. That 80000 left your pocket. I start your loan. We start gathering the paperwork while you're working on the rehab. As soon as that rehab is a week out, we communicate with your contractor. I have a person on my team, Karen, who orders appraisal, tracks them, maintains them. She orders the appraiser appraisal to try and get the appraiser out to the day after you're done with the rehab. Why? Because that's when it's at its cleanest. You want everything cleaned up, the lawn mowed, the weed, the weed. Eater had to run around the yard, everything spit polished. So it's, I want it to look like it's getting ready to go on the cover of a real estate magazine. Why? Because appraisers appraise what they see. Mm -hmm. You know, okay. we, we think they got this amazing imagination because you gave them a list of stuff that you're going to do the property. Don't, don't put yourself in that position. Get it done. Get it complete. Make sure everything's cleaned up. That way they're appraising a done product, not a mess using their imagination because their imaginations suck. Just yeah, is, yeah. right? Our imaginations haven't been good since we we're six years old. So- yeah. Now that that's done, let's say we get an appraisal back for that. Maybe it's a little bit higher, maybe 110000 something to that effect. Now you're at 75% of that value or better. I can literally get your full 80000 back. And you've only been the deal. You've been, your money's been out for three months and now it's back in your pocket. You own the property for nothing. So maybe I missed something. So, so why, how, okay, I love this, right? Because I've done tons of burrs in Cleveland and I always had issues with appraisals. You just bought this property 30 days ago mm -hmm. and they're always giving you pushback. Um, or not getting all your 100% of your money back. Yep. So what is, so you come to the escrow with 80K, you get your purchase costs and renovations. So it shows you, you put up 80K to the table, it gets appraised at 100,000. So why, how can you get that 80? Don't they only give you like 70, 75? 75, I'm gonna say if it appraised, because okay. we're talking maybe to appraise 110. Right? Oh, so so if it appraised at 100, the max I can get you 75. Correct. So, so you brought 80, you got 75,000 loan amount, right? Okay. You can't add costs to it. So you're going to come up with costs too. She may be in the deal for 10 grand. Yeah. You own a house for 10,000 bucks. So yeah. if you make any cash flow at all, look at your cash on cash return on 10 grand. 
So uh, what my thought was, is, so do you have better odds of getting your money back if um, you bring it up front versus not? Yeah, because you bring it, if you don't bring it up front, you're not getting it all. Got it. At all. Now, that's a conventional lending program that we have. Now, here's another twist on this. So we talked a little bit about the infinite banking strategy. I at least alluded to it. So I have people that have, and I'm big into this. You use your life insurance policy. I put my money in the life insurance policy. Yeah. I borrow against the policy to buy my investments. But that policy is owned by my trust. So I get a loan from my trust. So when I buy- wait, wait, wait. So, so we're talking, another name of this is infinite banking? Infinite banking. Okay, cool. So just quick description as to what that is. So ultimately, I'll just tell you the story. And so okay. we're going to circle back around because I use this in the Burr a lot. Okay, so we're that's going, why we're, that's why we're getting into this. We're wrapping this is a, infinite with Burrs. This is okay. how it works Got with it. the Burr, and it can be used in different ways. I'm just you guys have to call me to get all the different ways to do it. But this is the <laughs> way we do. It. I talked about how I was 460, yeah, 460 credit score back in 2009. Everybody's coming yeah. here to buy houses. Um, I was a negative net worth. I went into the hospital worth about three million dollars. I rolled out at a negative 1.5 when I came out of the hospital. I had to negotiate to get all my debts covered, but I did because luckily I had this massive medical bill that I can hand everybody, mm -hmm. $1.7 million for one week. I was in there for several weeks. So I got back to where my credit score was up in the 700s. I got 90,000 saved to start investing in real estate in 2016. I heard one of my clients who at the time had just financed 17 houses between he and his spouse. Now he was the captain of the USS Tucson nuclear submarine. Mm -hmm. Then he went to work at the Naval Academy as an instructor. At the time I was working with him, was working at the Pentagon for the chair of the Joint Chiefs, overseeing all weapons for the military, on his way to become an admiral. I had heard through the grapevine that this guy left the military to sell life insurance. So I like, take whoa. a personal, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I take a very personal stake in every single one of my clients and decisions they make because their success ultimately becomes my success. So I called him up and said, hey, is this true? He goes, yes. Are you freaking stupid? And he just laughs about it. He goes, I will not ask that, answer that question until you get your wife on a video conference call with us. It was go-to meeting at the time. We didn't have. So it was October of 2016. It's my birthday weekend. We're in a cabin in Northern Arizona, and we are on a go-to meeting with this guy breaking this down. And Gary's giving me the full rundown on how to use this. 90 grand sitting aside to buy some properties. I literally, when I was done with this, I took my 90,000. I bought a life insurance policy on me. It had a $2.7 million death benefit. And within the first month, I was able to borrow approximately 83000 against mm -hmm. the policy, less than a month, guys, because I was working with the right guy, that I was able to buy those three properties. Each of those properties was generating over $200 a month in cash flow. I took the cash flows and started paying down the notes on the property, on the pay, paying down the, the note on the loan against my policy. Plus, I was taking 10% of my income, which is what I used, saved to get the 90 grand to begin with. I was paying down that note. So I knocked it down from an eighty-three-ish thousand-dollar note down into like the mid-fifties within a few, within about thirteen months. Well, why? And, and if I and correct me, it, while you're you put the ninety and you took eighty-three out, you started investing it and paying it down. But that ninety original ninety, the insurance company also was paying you to have that money. They're paying me five percent. Right? They're paying you five percent on top of you working your eighty-three thousand dollar. Got it. Yep. So as I'm paying down the note, right, and I had more money available, I pulled it and bought another property. Now I'm generating over nine hundred dollars a month in cash flow. So I'm paying it down faster. But don't you have to like pay into it as well? Or or is there, I don't know much about I know Unbridled Wealth is one of our business associates and they explain it well. I like, don't you have like a monthly payment or do you, you, yeah, you have an annual premium? Got it. Okay. But see, since I'm really cycling the money, I'll, literally I can pull it out and pay the premium if I need it. Yes. To. But okay. I'm also yeah. generating enough capital to be able to pay the premium. I'm Got it. So it is, I'm generating more money. I'm cycling this through and I borrow again, borrow again, borrow again. So I started with, 
83,000 available to me. That's 2016. I deployed over $1.1 million out of that policy because I keep cycling it like a machine. Put the money in, take it back out. Put the money in, take it back out because you're utilizing all your assets. I don't need the cash flow to live right now. I got a very good operating mortgage business. Yeah. That pays my living. I take the extra and pay down the notes. So then I decided at that point, I said, hmm, this is an awesome strategy. I'm going to get a policy on each one of my kids, then a policy on my spouse. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to have my kids come in and sit down and we're going to talk to whoever we invest with and I'm going to let them ask questions. Mm. Then I will decide whether or not we invest based upon the questions they ask and the answers they get. So were you meaning when you said you got policy, were they the life insurance policies were there like a 90 grand for one kid, 90 grand well, for It was 90 kid. grand for me, then five for each kid. And my yeah. wife was 20. Got it. Right. Because okay. it all depends upon but the- They all did the infinite banking concept. It was all infinite okay. banking. Okay. And so ultimately what it boils down to is it's kind of macabre. They look at what your life is worth, mm -hmm. right? What kind of income you're generating? What would be the loss if they had loss of life? But each kid, I put in 5,000, but it gave me an $800,000 death benefit, right? Yeah. And it's owned by the trust. So then if something happens to one of my kids or my wife, then that money goes into the trust and mm -hmm. it's now family wealth. I decided if I'm going to, eventually I'm going to die. And when I die, my kids need to do, know what I'm doing with all this. So I've made them part of the family trust in the sense that we sit around the table, we discuss our investments, that we all vote on it, they interview it. When they're interviewing these guys, and the youngest was nine years old at the time that we do the interviews, she would have the opportunity to ask questions and her questions got better and better and better the more she was exposed. Amazing. Where what was really cool is you saw the guys who were offering the opportunities, their explanation got dumber and dumber and dumber where, and I call it dumber, but it was not dumber, it's actually more intelligent to the extent that a nine-year-old can understand it. So I was benefiting two sides. Wow. And then, yeah. so now my relationships are getting stronger with these guys because I do business with them too. They refer me clients. At the same time, we're investing with them. And okay. so now I have all these, all this, this back and forth where we're building this up. And now when my kids get married, they and their spouse have to do the same thing. They have to get infinite banking policies on each other mm -hmm. and they have to follow the same pattern. Otherwise, they get written out of my trust. They'll still be in the will, but they're out of the trust. But they need to be able to operate this and has to perpetuate in the future. The thing I love about the life insurance policy, it's, Think about it this way. It's life insurance, not death insurance. It's life insurance. I am insured that I can live my life. I'm going to spend every single damn dime I've got. I want to spend the last dollar the second I pass. Mm. So that way I've used every asset that I've developed myself to enjoy the life that I have. Because when I die, my family's going to get such a windfall of death benefit that it doesn't matter what I leave them. Ah, Who cares, right? So all these people- like So you weren't, you're not even worrying about building up the rental property numbers. And yeah, I don't give a crap. Right? What do I care? They're going to make so much money when I die, it doesn't matter. God. And that's all going to go into the trust and they have to perpetuate it for the next generation, the next generation, mm -hmm. right? That's how genera generational wealth is truly perpetuated through these death benefits. That's how the Rockefellers did it. That's how I believe how the Morgans did it. You know, Carnegie didn't do that. Did the did the Vanderbilts? All of it was vaporized, mm. right? Because nobody had life insurance policies. So I use that. I like it. So real quick. So can't you also buy policies on other people? Maybe yes. like friends, family, yeah. other family members, coworkers, coworkers. Right? people that are important to your to your business. Yeah. All of them, right? Yeah. You can literally have you can literally buy people's policies from them if they have impending yes. death. That's a whole other business. settlement. Viatical, whole other thing, yes. right? Yeah, it's macabre as hell. It's like I'm just waiting for you to die. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like. Because somebody but go out in front of this guy. There's a value there, just like when you wholesale houses. Who would think they would sell their house at forty cents on the dollar? But there's a pain, or there's a pressure where they hate the house. So yep. Same situation. If you're you're eighty years old, you want to go live your life. You can get that your payment on your life insurance in advance. A hundred percent. It's, it's, it's yeah, crazy. There's, yeah. there's different ways. There's always a different way to make yeah, money. Man. So with this particular thing, what it is is it gave me this insight into one how to have a have 
generational wealth without having to set money aside and not live my life. It's too often I hear people like, well, I want to buy this for my kids. I'm like, hell with your kids. Get the policy and they will have all that they need and then some. And how's that policy? Is it like, does it grow based on your initial purchase of it or, or does it grow over time as you put more money? It grows it over time. So the way I have it set up is I purchase the policy and then it has a, a minimum amount every year to do a your premium. I do what's called paid up additions. So paid I'll put it even more. So literally I'll put in an additional $80,000 a year into each and all the distribute over all these policies because we're supposed to continue to keep making money, right? So I saved enough money to buy one policy, but what says I'm not going to save enough money to do it again. So I put it back in there as paid up addition to expand it, expand it from having uh, 83,000 available to me to now it's a hundred and some thousand available to me and it keeps compounding year after year. So I did this is 2016. There's a lot available to me now. I have well over a million dollars available to me in these policies. And what's really cool about it, it's not my money. Wow. It's the life insurance company's money. So nobody can come after me, right? Some states, they can. But mm -hmm. if I was being sued, that's not my money. Yeah. Right? That's sitting there. It's, it's, and it's growing at 5%. If it's in a bank account, they can come take it. If it's a bank account, it's growing at nothing. What's also really, really awesome about this, let's just say I took the 90 grand I had in the bank account. I bought my three properties and then I died the next day. My family gets three properties and an empty bank account. Mm -hmm. But since I put it into life insurance policy and I pulled the money, I borrowed the money from that, bought my three properties. And then if I pass, my family gets the three properties plus $2.7 million minus 83,000. And you're buying those properties in a trust. As With a trust, yep. yes. I mean, so let's tie this in now. So you're doing the burr. Now we're so, doing the burr. So let's, say, let's use my example, the 83,000. Let's say I did the 83,000, I did a burr, right? So, but since the trust owns that life insurance policy I borrowed the money from, I sign a note and do a deed of trust and a warranty deed on that property with my trust. So I borrowed the money from the trust for the 83,000 I did. Well, let's say it's the, the 80 grand that we just did this mm -hmm. example, the 80 grand to buy this house for 50 and fix it up, right? Yep. So now when I go to do the refinance on it, I have a lien against the property from my trust. So when I do the refi now, it's a rate and term refinance. It's no longer a cash out. There is no seizing on it because I'm paying off an existing lien. I have all the paperwork that leads up and my team makes sure it's all in place before all of this closes. So when I go to do a refinance, somebody comes to me with that same scenario. Hey, okay. I want to do this loan. There's a lien against the property. It's an $80,000 lien. The price is worth a hundred. Is places I can do an 80% rate and term refinance for an investor. Okay. So literally pay off that loan. The money goes right back into their life insurance policy. They have 80 grand available to them. They end the property for nothing, and it's a rate and term refi. What's beneficial there is there has been the Federal Housing Finance Agency has added what they call loan level price adjustments to certain loans. One of those loan level price adjustments is cash out loans because we're trying to quell inflation. People take cash out on their houses, they go spend money, right? Pushes inflation up. It's yep. just money chasing goods. Well, if they're quelling that, they're now pushing the rates probably an eighth or quarter higher in interest rate for a cash out refinance, and your points are one to one and a half points higher to do a cash out refinance versus a rate and term. I just showed you how to do a rate and term. You did? Amazing. So, and we can help every single client and wow. guide you through it. You got to call me first. You can't call <laughs> any other lender and say, hey, this is what I heard on the Azria show. They have no idea what the hell you're talking about. That's amazing. And man. how did I figure this out? By doing this with the you're infinite set. banking thing. It's also doing having, it. Yeah. yeah, doing it myself and then having enormous amount of communication with Fannie and Freddie. And, and that's because that's one thing we do preach around here. If you're going to use an accountant, have an accountant to invest in real estate. If you're, you, Whatever 
lawyer, whatever it is, everyone needs to invest in real estate themselves mm -hmm. if they're going to be your service provider. So I, I truly believe in that. And you just explained it very well. And I have real estate Look, in six states. Yeah, that's amazing, man. So I want to kind of get into kind of how to start wrapping up. I think this is, there needs to be a part two. I'm all <laughs> you, about part you, two. Yeah, man, for sure. Because time flew by on this one. Let's just kind of dive into, again, appreciate all that information. Great. What are you doing now? What do you got coming up? How can we get a hold of you? Things like that. So what am I doing now? I mean, there's a lot of, there's even more crazier stuff, right? So I got out of the hospital, learned how to walk again. I used to run marathons and stuff like that. I need to do something with my body. I actually joined the Sheriff's Department Rescue Unit. So I did a lot of technical rescues out in the, the Superstition. Oh, okay. I don't know if you remember the plane crash over yeah. Thanksgiving years ago. I was one of the guys up there picking up, unfortunately, body parts. Oh, wow. Um, there was a, there's a base jumper that got hung up. I was, I sat down to get the base jumper. I've been on the news for international rescues because of running the technical rescue unit for that team and their off-road rescue unit, their air rescue unit, and mm -hmm. all kinds of things for nine years. Retired from that in 2018, but they didn't need the actual guys anymore. They had a lot of equipment doing what we used to do. So that's how I got involved in Operation Underground Railroad. I mm -hmm. got to know Tim Ballard and the people there, the operators, the guys who were running that, that operation. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to see the, the movie Sound of Freedom three years ago, the private viewings. I got to know the director very well. I actually have a watch from the movie that I bought from the director, which is it's amazing. an amazing piece, right? Yep. Really cool experiences there. But the one thing about it, people need to know that's one of the things that drives us to what we do. We mm -hmm. drive business because we need the additional capital to be able to produce more revenue for them or at least donations for them to do their job. Because not everybody's out there in the mix of this ugliness in our world trying to rescue children. Yeah, That's a special kind of person doing that kind of thing, but they need resources. How do you get those resources? People like us, they're driving hard to build our businesses. We want to do it for a cause. Eddie Wilson, he likes to say mm -hmm. he's a cause capitalist. So are we. Yep. So we do what we do for the sake of not only to feed ourselves, feed our families, feed the, the teams, that my team, and the real estate investors and the people we work with and the people who refer us business, but something bigger than all of us. Of course. Right. So there's that. I'm driving really hard for that. And that's why I get involved with and why I speak. I bring uh, the president or the, yeah, the president and the uh, head of global operations for OUR to speak with me. I've got a book coming out. I'm going to come back for that. Yeah, when we're sure. ready to push it out, Robert Allen, do you know the name Robert Allen? Of course. He's writing the foreword of this book. Amazing. I was just talking about yesterday. He said, you need to have some illustrations. My brother's an artist. I say, what do you want to do? Mm. He blew this thing up. He's got 13 master or 14 masterpieces in this book. And we're talking full on masterpieces, like the old illuminated manuscripts yeah. from like the 1300s. Look that up, illuminated <laughs> manuscript. You'll see what I'm talking about. But he rednecked it all up. Yeah. When that comes out, that's another thing that we're driving people to figure out how you want to get to where you want to get. There's ways I got here, mm -hmm. but a lot of it was just sitting down and writing it out and so vividly that describing where I was going to go that actually ended up there without really realizing it sometimes. So I'm going okay. to coach people and help them accomplish that same thing. It's going to all going to start. So that's what I'm doing now, just okay. driving business, trying to help people understand what's really out there, the ugly underbe underbelly of the world. And you got the Sean Ryan show. He's got uh, a guy out there. I can't remember what the episode is, but he was he's a hacker mm -hmm. that's hacking into these sites and these people that are doing trafficking children. There's people out there doing something, and it's the most debilitating thing in the world to think of because we don't think we can do anything. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can. See the movie. Take people to see the movie. Talk about this stuff. Be aware of what it is so you can point out there's a dirtbag right there. We need to do something about it. God. We've got to change the world in that respect. And starts with just knowing what's happening. So- yep. Education. There's that and just driving business, trying to make investors successful. I have this belief that, or at least this thought process, that I don't care about your first investment. Mm -hmm. I care about your 10th investment. 
Okay. And you're not going to get there if we're not successful with your first. True. If you suck at your first, or you buy the wrong deal, you buy the wrong house, then you're not going to get to number 10. And yeah, the you might be out the game. tell you about yeah. lenders today, the average lender in our space, the average loan originator that you might be looking to see who's offering what rate, quit that crap. Because the average lender right now is cutting all they can to do one to two, like zero to one loan per month. Oh, wow. So when you call that guy up and you get the awesomest rate in the world, right? And then you're like, I don't know about this property. This looks like this can be something that's causing me problems, but I don't know. Let me ask my lender. He's going to use everything within his selling capability to convince you to close on the house because you could be yeah. 50 to 100% of his income that month. Now, yep. this is not Good me point. trying to be an ass and say, hey, I'm still going to bread my table that you close that deal. It's not going to matter. It does matter to me because if you close the wrong house, you're not doing number 10. Because that important. one will cripple you. I need you to be successful at number one. I need you successful two, three, and four so I can get you to 10 to 20. That's where we all become successful. Great way of thinking, man. Yeah, because especially, like I said, numbers are down. Things are slower. Yeah, people are trying to survive. So they'll say certain. Yeah, let's end it there, man. Number 10. I love that, man. Number so 10. Aaron Chapman, Security National Mortgage. How do we get hold of you? AaronChapman.com. Oh, if that doesn't work, just Google Aaron Chapman. There's like four or five of us that pop up on Google and there's only one redneck lender out there in Arizona. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you being here. We will do the follow-up part two. I did. I still want to dive deeper into that burn, and the whole life insurance. I want to know about your book when it comes out and everything that you're doing. So thanks for being on Nazaria Show, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. I'm looking forward to the next time. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Azria Show with your hosts, Marcus Maloney and Mike Delpreet. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this information valuable, head over to azria.org and learn more about our community.